So we are uh, continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. We've been reading through Mark, and uh, we're early on. We're a couple chapters in, and I want to draw your attention to a pattern that we've already seen develop in these early chapters of Mark. Uh, Jesus has a lot of encounters with a crowd. The crowds are gathering at almost every single stop wherever Jesus is. And every time the crowd gathers, what we've seen is that there are also religious leaders that are attracted to the crowd. And these religious leaders are increasingly acting in a, a hostile way towards Jesus. Every single encounter seems to be escalating in hostility. Like, they're getting more and more angry with Jesus. And so I just want to uh, retrace our steps through the Gospel of Mark where we've seen this. So it started when, when they lowered the, the paralyzed man through the roof. And remember what Jesus said to him? The first thing he said is, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders were there, and they were like, wait, whoa, who do you think you are to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And then it continued from there where Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And that night, he went to Matthew's house for dinner. And all of the, Matthew's colleagues, his tax collecting and sinner friends came. And, and the religious leaders were standing outside watching Jesus have a meal with all of these sinful people. And they thought, what kind of holy man is this? And then it con continued with, them watching Jesus and his disciples, and they observed that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting like the Pharisees and the Pharisees' disciples and like the disciples of John the Baptist. And again, they're like, what kind of outfit are you running here? It must be nice to be a disciple of Jesus. And then Jesus permits his disciples to violate the Sabbath. The, sa the disciples are plucking heads of grain, which to us seems like, what's the big deal? But but to them in that culture, they had all of these rules of what you couldn't do. And I guess plucking a head of grain was something you couldn't do. And, and so they questioned, well, how do you let your disciples do this? And he instructed the Pharisees and said, the Sabbath was not made for man. No, I'm sorry, man was not made for Sab the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And they're like, who does he think he is to instruct us about the Sabbath? And then the, the last thing we've seen, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there is a man there with a shriveled hand. And, and Jesus is going to heal the man with the shriveled hand, and he knows what the Pharisees are thinking, like, how dare you do this healing on the Sabbath? And Jesus becomes angry with them, and he rebukes them publicly. This is in the synagogue. This is their home turf. They're in front of their crowd, and Jesus rebukes them about their hard hearts that they, they don't want him to heal this man with a shriveled hand. It's almost as if, as we've been reading these early chapters of Mark, it's almost as if Jesus' mission is defined by how many religious leaders I can upset as quickly as possible. I mean, you read the first couple chapters of Mark, and it's like, this is, this is Jesus' intention. I'm going to upset religious leaders. And so it's at this point in chapter 3, verse 6, that we read this. The Pharisees began to plot with the Herodians on how to kill Jesus. Like they, they're done. 
They're done with Jesus. They are now ready to, to kill him. And so they form an alliance with the Herodians. Now, today we hear that, Pharisees, Herodians, it means nothing to us. If I were to tell you Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are forming an alliance with Ted Cruz and the Republicans, you would be like, whoa, like what in the world got them to do that? That's what's going on here. Pharisees and Herodians, this is an unlikely alliance. The Herodians were these wealthy uh, Jewish aristocrats who supported King Herod, who supported Rome, which really bothered the Pharisees. But the Herodians see Jesus as a threat to political peace. The Pharisees see Jesus as a threat to the, the religious structures that keep them in power, and so they've got a common enemy. And so now that they have a common enemy, we're going to put our differences aside. We're going to come together and we're going to figure out how do we kill Jesus. So we're continuing in Mark this morning and we're going to run into a third group of people that rise in opposition to Jesus and it's going to be very surprising to us who that group of people is. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, we pray that your word would be our rule and your spirit would be our guide and your glory would be our greatest desire. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to work our way through this a, a verse at a time. We're jumping in at chapter 3, verse 20. What has just happened, Jesus has just called the 11 disciples to follow him, so, or 12. So he now has 12 disciples that are following him, and we pick up the story at, at verse 20. It says, then Jesus entered a house. Now we've seen enough from Mark to know what's going to happen. A crowd's going to form, aren't they? Every time Jesus comes to a house, the crowd hears about it in Capernaum, and they come. Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. This is an aggressive crowd. I mean, they are pressing in. By now, in Capernaum, Jesus is the talk of the town. So let's just kind of translate this into our our setting. Imagine here in Fulton, somebody comes to town who has the ability to heal diseases, the ability to cast out demons, the ability to set people free from their addictions and the things that torment them. This person comes and when they teach, people are, are cut to the heart. We know in our small community, it wouldn't take long before everybody knows about this person. In fact, it would extend well beyond our community. People would be coming from Clinton and Comanche and DeWitt and from Albany and Port Byron and from Morrison and Sterling and Rock Falls and, and even faraway places like Chicago and, and Iowa City, Savannah. People would be coming to get a firsthand experience of this person. That's what's going on in Capernaum. Jesus was a, a shooting star, and people were coming from far and wide to, to witness him with their own eyes. Some people coming just because they wanted to see, some people coming desperately in need of, of a miracle, in need of healing. 
And now the crowd is getting so out of hand that Jesus needs to resort to to strategies to keep himself safe. We're going to see that he starts to get in boats, like push off from the shore so that I can teach the people without getting trampled by them. So it's at this point that Jesus' family learns what's going on. They are, they're living in Nazareth, and, and like everyone else is hearing about Jesus, they're hearing about the things that he's doing and the crowds that are, are gathering. And while everyone can't get enough of Jesus, his own family is starting to have had enough with Jesus. Like, enough already. Jesus had a number of younger brothers. We learn from Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that he had at least four. And we learn the names, uh, Joseph, James, Judas, and Simon. These are his younger brothers. He has sisters. And there's mention of his mother. There's no longer mention of his father. Uh, most scholars believe that his father has probably died uh, at this point. But his, his mother and his brothers, they're becoming concerned about Jesus. This past Wednesday at our community meal at the table, uh, we were working through a gospel of John, and we also came to another passage where the family wasn't so happy. And we asked the, the conversation question, what do you think it was like to have Jesus as an older brother? I mean, imagine that. Like, you can never blame your older brother for, you know, he's the one who did it. Because mom and dad, they're going to know right away, no, it wasn't Jesus. Like, if there was ever a reason for a sibling rivalry, having Jesus as your older brother was it. So on this particular day, Jesus is in a house. He's surrounded by a crowd that's aggressive. And then we read this. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. This is his family. This is his mother. This is his brothers. They went to take charge of him, for he is out of his mind. The, the word to take charge of him literally means they went to arrest him. They went to, to seize him. They're convinced that he's suffering from some form of mental illness, that he's no longer able to make intelligible decisions. He's acting irrationally. He's gotten a little too carried away. He's gotten a little bit overzealous. He's, if not corralled, what his family sees, he's going to get himself hurt. In fact, he's going to get himself killed. So the other day that this children's sermon was inspired by a thought that I had as I told Sam for the umpteenth time, be safe, as he was heading out the door, like, like yes, it's good to, to wish safety for our children. What parent doesn't want their child to be safe? If you're a good parent, you want your child to be safe. You want them to be careful. It's, it's an instinct that parents have. And that instinct was in Mary, she wanted Jesus to be safe, and she could see that what he was doing was not safe. She could see where this was heading. Our calculus as parents, our calculus as people can't always be, what's the safest thing? 
If we're going to follow Christ, the, the question that wins cannot always be what's the, the safest thing. We need to be asking what's the right thing? What's the obedient thing? What's the God-honoring thing? And so, so for me, I'm going to just try it out and, you know, try and train myself. Sam, be brave. Be brave today. Be courageous today and be safe. But be brave. And so mom and brothers are concerned. They're concerned about Jesus, and so they're traveling from Nazareth to Capernaum to arrest Jesus to take charge of him, to seize him, to, to help him because he's a danger to himself. Mary sees he's going to get killed, but what she doesn't understand is that is exactly his mission. So Mary and her other sons are coming to, to take charge over Jesus, to take charge over the Son of God, which, as we say that today, sounds absurd like, why would you ever think that you're in a position to take charge over God? And yet I do wonder how many times I at least think it in my head, like, boy, God, I'm not sure that you're doing this right. You know, like, if I had your power, if I was all-knowing and, and all-powerful, I think I might be doing something differently. That's like my own vain attempt to, to take charge over Jesus. The family's coming, meanwhile... Some bigwigs from Jerusalem, some Pharisees, some teachers of the law in Jerusalem have heard about what's going on in Capernaum, and so they're traveling 120 miles to Capernaum to investigate for themselves. Like, who is this person, and what's he up to, and does he get our approval? The scripture says, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So word had made it to, to Capernaum. Down come the, the religious leaders, and instantly, they, I mean, it doesn't require hardly any time at all. It's almost like they've already had their minds made up before they came. They instantly give their judgment. Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, it's hard for us today to trace back the meaning of Beelzebub, but fortunately, Mark follows it up and translates it for us. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. By the prince of demons, he's possessed by Satan. This is what the religious leaders are saying. He is possessed by Satan, and he's guilty of witchcraft. Like, this is some dark magic that he's doing to perform all of these miracles. It was an accusation that, if believed, would justify the execution of Jesus. But in typical fashion, Jesus is unintimidated and he's undeterred. And so he looks to his accusers and he says this, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. The end has come. And then he tells a parable. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions 
unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So the accusation that he is possessed by Satan because he's driving out Satan is ridiculous. Why would Satan want to drive out his own evil spirits? Jesus tells this parable, and in the parable what he's saying is that Satan is the strong man. And I've come to this earth to raid it, to rob it of the things that Satan has taken from me. And because I'm stronger, I've bound Satan. And now we've got this kingdom invasion. We sang about it, our very first song, King of Heaven, come. That's what Jesus was. It was the King of Heaven coming to take back that which would have been taken from him. He's raiding Satan's house. And so how do we see that? People afflicted and tormented by evil spirits, Jesus is setting free. People overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, Jesus is saying, you're forgiven. People stuck in despair and depression, Jesus is giving hope. This accusation that Jesus is being driven by Satan couldn't be more false. You know what those religious leaders from Jerusalem, you know what they needed to do? They needed to be quiet and listen to the demons. Because every time Jesus would drive out a demon, you know what the demon would say? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And the demons were proclaiming who Jesus was. Jesus followed by saying this, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. This verse has caused a lot of Christians over the years a whole lot of anxiety. We call it the, the unforgivable sin. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Well, before we zero in on the scary part of, of what Jesus said, I think we're, we're skipping an incredible thing that Jesus said. Listen to it again. I tell you the truth. All, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Think about that for a second. All of the sins. That sin that, that haunts you that sin that, 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 that you committed and it just follows you. You feel the, the emotional weight of it, the spiritual weight of it in your life. You live with that weight. Jesus is saying that sin has been forgiven. And later in the scripture, it will say it's not only forgiven, but it's forgotten. He remembers our sins no more. The grace of God, Jesus is saying, does not have a leash on it. It doesn't just go so far. It goes all the way, all of the sins. Jesus died for all of the sins. That's incredible news. We need to rest in that, rejoice in that. All of the sins will be forgiven through Jesus Christ. All right, so the scary news None of your sins will be forgiven apart from Christ. 
Let me just say those two right next to each other. All of your sins will be forgiven through Christ. None of your sins will be forgiven apart from Christ. To reject Christ is the unforgivable sin. It is the unpardonable sin. Many Christians have agonized, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And and the best answer I ever heard to that is if you're concerned about it, you haven't done it. Like the, the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus Christ, which makes sense if If our only salvation is in Jesus Christ, then the only thing that can keep salvation from us is to reject Jesus Christ. That's what the the Pharisees were doing that day. They were rejecting Jesus Christ. They're saying he's not divine, he's demonic. He's evil, he's from Satan. It's at this point that Jesus' family shows up. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, we read, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd is sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So I want you to think about your relationship with your mother, if your mother is still alive. If your mother wants to to find you, wants to talk to you, and it's urgent, do you say no? No, come on. I don't. Why? This is my mom. I mean, this is the the woman who has done so much for me, given so much to me, sacrificed so much for me. She has forever earned the right of my attention. She's my mom. This is even more true in Jesus' day where they've got this cultural expectation of honoring mom and dad. Like, you don't dare dishonor mom and dad in this culture, which makes Jesus' response so shocking. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and brothers, he asked. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. So again, instead of hearing this as a a slam against our biological families, we're better served by first hearing this as an elevation of the faith family. It was one thing to refer to them as disciples. He's just called them 12 disciples. The crowd's pressing in. The disciples are in the inner circle. And he says to them, here, here are my brothers, my my mother and my sisters. Through faith in Christ, we are, are related to Christ by blood. But it's not biological blood. It's the blood of Christ. We are brothers of Christ, we're sisters of Christ, which means we're also brothers and sisters to one another. It's not an exaggeration, this word brother and sister that that is thrown around. It is what we are, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so now we have to make sure that we're not hearing what Jesus is not saying about biological family. He's not saying that once we become, become part of the family of God, 
that we can shed all relational ties with our biological family. He's not saying that. He's not saying we don't have any more responsibilities towards our biological family. In fact, he would rebuke those who gave their tithes and offerings to the church and then said, I have nothing for my families. He said, no, you first take care of your family. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul would write to Timothy, he'd say, if anyone doesn't provide for their relatives, especially for the members of their own household, they've denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. So biological family, Jesus holds that up pretty high. So why on this day did Jesus fail to acknowledge his family? They're on the outside, they're asking to see him, and he ignores them. I think it was because he knew that their intentions were to stop him. They came that day to seize him, to arrest him, to stop him from the mission that was before him. This was very much like his incident with Peter. Remember when Peter said, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die? What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, because you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Mary and their brothers were coming that day because they had not in mind the things of God, but the things of a mother's heart the things of the brothers. They came to stop him. This was his get-behind-me moment with his family. There comes that moment where pressed, where we have got to be faithful to God. Mary came to stop him from being killed. And what she didn't understand is that is exactly why he came. And it's because of that mission that we get to come to the table today. It's because Jesus followed through with his mission to die for us, taking our place, placing, paying for our debt so that not some of our sins, but all of our sins could be atoned for. And so when you come to the table today, I want you to come in a, a spirit that, that recognizes his grace is not on a leash. Like he has poured out his grace on you and his favor on you. Come knowing that in Christ you are forgiven. Period. Come receive the grace that God has for you. Come be nourished by Jesus Christ. He said, I am the bread of life. Eat from me and you will live. You will have eternal life. Come and enjoy this small foretaste of the banquet that awaits us. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Join me as we pray. Father God, um, we celebrate this morning that uh, the reason we can come uh, to this table is because you came to this earth and you didn't turn back from, from the mission even though uh, there were so many people that wanted you to turn back. Lord, you went all the way to the cross. You died in our place. You rose again. You have victory over sin and victory over the death. And, and Lord, you have demonstrated that you're eager to feed us. Lord, you are not withholding your grace from us. You want us to, to drink deep. 
to eat of, of your flesh and to drink of your blood. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that we would come, we come as brothers and sisters to one another, as brothers and sisters to you. Lord, meet, meet your family here. Fill us. Send your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, unite us. Where there's division, uh, unite us. And then we ask that you would send us from this place, that we would be brave, that we would be courageous to, to follow you wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.